I mean, if if they want to get somebody with with the, the survival skills they need, they need to get your brother and his sixty lobsters. Yes, my brother has has also greeted the pandemic by going full mountain man. So my brother purchased forty lobsters just yesterday. So that's that's currently what my parents are doing. It is it is one seventeen in the morning local time as we record. My parents are boiling forty lobsters, forty <laughs> one and a half pound lobsters. In large vats of seawater in the yard, because that smell will never come out of the curtains. Uh, because <laughs> my brother is a madman. He's also got four live chickens that he's purchased and he is keeping, I believe, in his apartment until he can build an osprey-proof chicken coop in the yard. So again, I live in Halifax now. I, I want no part of any of this. <laughs> when the 400 pounds of potatoes my brother planted... Come to har- I will assist with harvest, and I'm, but I'm I'm not getting involved. <laughs> I will leave the commune for the big city of Halifax. It's the compound. So My brother refers to his garden as the compound, and it's it's oh. getting cultier by the day. My brother dates nothing but Instagram models, like ninety five pound Instagram models, which makes no sense because all he ever wants to do is like plant large amounts of garlic, which is not. <laughs> an influencer thing so but if my brother manages to like date more than one of them at once he's basically doc antel from tiger king so (laughs) we're teetering on the brink of madness here it's just my brother planting industrial quantities of vegetables in the wilderness by himself and like middle of the night lobster genocide yeah the whole the whole thing is is very very stressful i am a soft round indoor person and I don't understand what's happening. Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Welcome back to Fat, French, and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. And neither of us has COVID. Hooray. Neither of us. Ha <laughs> That we know of. As of, as of I guess um, it's technically July 1st. Happy Canada Day. Happy, happy Canada Day. It's Canada uh, Day in my time zone. It's not Canada Day in your time zone just yet. There's like a full, like, Silent Hill pea soup fog that's rolled through Halifax right now. So all I can see is the red neon sign across the street that says, like, motel just glowing in the gloom. Like, I I full-on live in some kind of Konami horror game right now. I'm hoping our our, our recording today doesn't get interrupted by the the air raid siren. (laughs) Well, I'll let you know if Pyramid Head shows up, but, uh... We didn't really need the ambiance. <laughs> no, no, no. The the global pandemic is actually the ambiance for this week's episode. The life and times of Typhoid Mary, which was a name she hated, by the way. Absolutely <laughs> hated in life. She. I mean, it's not the nicest name, I've got to admit. I, I wouldn't care for that at all. <laughs> is it how I want to be remembered, like, a hundred years after I die? No. 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 Not Absolutely really. I don't want to be known for a disease that causes you to poop yourself to death. But I kind of started researching this episode as a bit of a joke. I was like, well, it's a pandemic. Let's do a pandemic-themed episode. Let's make Let's have the fun global with it. pandemic fun, I guess. Like, <laughs> but yeah, but then when I actually started researching 
the life of Mary Mallon, which was her real name, uh, there's a lot more to it than I thought there was going to be. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people, their first encounter with Typhoid Mary is we learn about her when we're really young, so they mostly censor out the horrific, brutal destruction of her civil rights. Yeah, that is exactly how I learned about Typhoid Mary. It was, like, kind of a fun fact. It was like a, you know, you get those, like, illustrated children's history books. Yeah, like horrible history and that kind of thing. Yeah, it was it was one of those kinds of deals. It was like, you know, she was a fun fact on the back of a cereal box. But then when I started researching her as an adult, it turns out that her life was actually more about it was it was less about you know fun history facts and more about ongoing class warfare that's <laughs> really what it comes down to <laughs> we're, we're gonna get into it we're we're we're, we're podcasting on behalf of the proletariat today oh we a hundred percent we're always podcasting on behalf of the proletariat um, <laughs> on some this... level ever since we did that episode about two maids murdering their the papasters, their employers, one of my favorites. <laughs> but um, but yeah, but since we're all still mostly locked down in what is almost certainly just year one of the coronavirus, don't remind me. I know so many people who think this will be over by fall twenty twenty, and I I don't even know what to say. <laughs> Although uh, this is this is day twenty one in Nova Scotia that we have no active cases. We've also completely yeah. closed the border, and we Fun don't have that stuff. many people, and we all live really far apart from each other. But, uh, but hooray, it's effectively eliminated in Nova Scotia, till one of you interlopers comes and messes it all up for us. Yeah, it just destroys it all. Once we start letting you Westerners, which applies to the entire country from where I'm sitting. <laughs> <laughs> well, you Easterners from where I'm sitting... Uh, yeah, I hope I hope it goes well. Your your healthcare system is not great. It's not good. No, no, no. I mean, better than anywhere south of the border, but you know, not great. It's, if if either of my parents get sick, I I think they have to go to the local vet. Like there's just there's no healthcare. <laughs> We're gonna bring live. bring bring down to dad down to Doctor Bob and have him put down. <laughs> I mean, probably not. It's how, he'll, how he wanted to go. We're going to try to avoid that. Although knowing your family, knowing your family, if you had to put your dad down, your younger brother would just take him out behind the shed. <laughs> oh, my dad's <laughs> not going down without a fight. I don't know how many of our podcast listeners follow me on Twitter, but I've been cataloging my father's slow descent into insanity as this <laughs> pandemic has gone on. It's given him the excuse to be the mountain man he's always wanted to be. So my dad has just been like out barefoot in the wilderness with a headlamp like shooting things it's it's please save me that's all i can say <laughs> paul como has gone fully feral i had to move to halifax it was it was too much i could not be party to any of this <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't keep hanging out in the woods it was doing things to me <laughs> oh Janelle, don't you want to be a sturdy farm wife <laughs> I do not want to be a sturdy oh, Nova, Scotia Nova Scotia farm wife it's, it's not the plan I want to be a pasty indoor podcaster it's <laughs> exactly what I intend to do so this is our welcome to our pandemic themed episode hopefully the only pandemic themed episode we do but we don't know we'll see how long this thing drags on this is fat French and tuberculotic from now on Unpleasant. This, this as a, I haven't given a content warning. We don't do content warnings on too many of our episodes. Uh, so this one is gross. There's your content warning. Content warning. I don't. Gross. I don't know if, if how many of our our listeners are familiar with what typhoid is because 
None of you are time lords, as far as I'm aware. But ty- uh, typhoid is deeply unpleasant. It's <laughs> If you have an opportunity to contract typhoid, my professional advice would be no. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. Opt out. Also, I, I'm not a medical professional, but I am a slut for medical terminology. Accurate medical terminology. So I will point out that Typhoid Mary was not the source of a pandemic, and she was not the source of an epidemic. She was the source of outbreaks, several small outbreaks. So even though Typhoid Mary is often blamed for an epidemic, she never actually made it that far. Uh, that That's a real accomplishment. Yeah, you, you need to really be an overachiever to single-handedly start an epidemic. You gotta be trying. <laughs> yeah, you really- You gotta, gotta, you gotta, gotta back into reach it. for the stars. You gotta, like, <laughs> you gotta lick some doorknobs. You gotta wipe snot on babies. Gotta openly hurricane your dick in the middle of Times Square. And you have to have a pretty virulent disease to start an epidemic. Because an epidemic is where a disease is affecting many members of a community or a distinct population. So if you infect a significant portion of the United States, you have started an epidemic. Or even if you infect a significant number of people in New York City or a significant number of people in New York State. Uh, But you need quite a few cases. You need, I don't know that there's an exact definition, but you do need... Uh, to spread it to a large, distinct population, and it needs to be pretty rooted in that population. A pandemic, which is the reason that half of you now know what it feels like to wipe your ass with a coffee filter, is what we're (laughs) going through right now. So (laughs) a pandemic is when an epidemic spreads to several countries or even to several continents. (laughs) That's the reason we've all gathered today, or the very very least, the reason why we're not allowed to. (laughs) Yeah, we're not allowed to gather. You've got to pipe us directly into your earballs, but you're not allowed to hang out with us, which is fine. It's better for you. So, outbreak. An outbreak is where you see more cases of a disease in a localized area than you might otherwise expect, or when you see new cases of a disease in an area that did not previously have it. Even a single case of a disease in a new area can be considered an outbreak. Mary Mallon didn't bring typhoid to New York City. New York City had typhoid before she showed up. It probably still does. (laughs) It's... Jessica, you spent significant time there. I lived there for three years. Every inch of that city is dirty and smells of hot dog water. It's... Oh, it's... (laughs) It's a pungent place to live. I think the smell of New York City is just evidence that typhoid has gone airborne. (laughs) It's it's pretty bad. So... (laughs) It is aerosolized. Mary didn't introduce typhoid to the swirling cesspool that was, like, 19th century New York City. All she did was that she brought it to neighborhoods and to households where it didn't previously exist. So she caused several outbreaks, but she didn't cause an epidemic. Like, she didn't cripple the city. Um, she was a, a public <laughs> health hazard in a pretty big way, but but she, she did not bring New York to its knees. Less <laughs> in the sense of, like, a burgeoning plague, more in the sense of a Chinese restaurant with a, with a C on the front. <laughs> yes, the New York City uh, Health Department gives your restaurant an A, B, or C letter grade. If you're eating at a C restaurant, you're taking your life into your own hands. <laughs> but uh, I wonder what an F is. 
probably just a biohazard in, in lemon that, chicken form. Anything below a C means they like they found a live rat cooking in your kitchen. Like it's <laughs> not not being made into food. Like it, this is a ratatouille situation where it's preparing dinner. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, just the entire staff are actual rats. <laughs> if you're if you're a person who like likes to travel in New York City or has a very romanticized view of New York City, I highly recommend that you look up how many health code violations a restaurant can get before it is awarded anything less than a perfect grade. It's it's more than you want it to be. <laughs> oh. Oh. It's a, a perfect grade on the front of the restaurant does not mean a perfect health inspection. I will tell you that right now. Well, and New York City had kind of the same problem back then that it does today. But more horses pooping um, in the That streets. we just saw with the coronavirus pandemic is that you have a lot of people living in very close proximity to each other and you have a lot of people who are living in, like, cramped, not particularly great conditions. So any kind of communicable disease can take root in New York City very quickly. The, the health department of New York has always taken this kind of thing extremely seriously. Today, where people, like, arguably, you know, wash their hands and, like, wipe properly, they still manage to be the epicenter, at one point the global epicenter of coronavirus, um, so you can imagine when when nobody's washing their hands and nobody has any plumbing, how bad things could get. <laughs> I mean, like, in the modern day, only 5% of the population openly poops on the street. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have, I've seen more people than I ever thought possible pooping into a subway station while living there. So I can only imagine what this was like in the age of the outhouse. Um... <laughs> But yeah, but uh, so Mary Mallon is one of those historical figures that everybody knows of, but nobody knows anything about. Uh, she's more or less a punchline at this point. <clears throat> at my old job, my coworkers used to call me Typhoid Mary because I will go to work sick unless I like absolutely cannot move. I have horrific anxiety around calling in sick, so I will just drag whatever is like left of my carcass. You also into have the office. no immune system. No, I have absolutely no immune system whatsoever. Like, I don't- My dad boiled everything that I touched until I was, like, six. So I, it takes nothing to get me sick. You can look at me through glass and I will get whatever you have. I started a flu outbreak that was so bad we had to close the high school for two days. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason why you sympathize with <laughs> Mary Mallon is because they're Listen. kindred spirit of yours. I can do this. I can keep working. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good to go. <laughs> I'm not a health hazard. I'm trying to be productive. Don't judge me. <coughs> <laughs> Yeah, I got to work once and my coworker immediately stuffed me into a van and brought me home. He was like, oh no, 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 we had to close for <laughs> two days last not. time. Get in the van. <laughs> like, oh. Gonna deep clean everything you've touched. Bring in the hazmat suits. <laughs> the great thing is, is that once you have that kind of reputation, when you call in sick, they believe you. <laughs> but enough about Janelle causing outbreaks in the greater Edmonton area. Let's talk about typhoid, Mary. Um, so before we can get into the life of the person herself and talk about who Mary was, we need to start by talking about what Mary was, why we remember her, which is that she was an asymptomatic carrier of a deadly disease. So if you've been watching the news, you've probably heard the term asymptomatic carrier so many times 
that hearing it again makes you want to put your head through a plate glass window. But bear with me, we have to talk about this. So an asymptomatic carrier of a disease is someone who is actively infected with the disease, but they don't have any symptoms or any outward signs of infection. There's different ways that you can be asymptomatic and contagious. So sometimes you can be what's called pre-symptomatic or incubatory. So this is when you are asymptomatic at the beginning of the disease, but you will eventually show symptoms. The best example of this is HIV. HIV has a very, very long asymptomatic incubation period. You can be HIV positive for 10 years and have no outward symptoms of the disease, not know that you have it unless you get tested. Um, but that entire time, you're actively infected and you are able to spread it. Fun stuff. Fun, oh, all of this is fun stuff. You're never going to want to touch another human being in your life. I, I, If the pandemic wasn't enough for you, all this virus information we're about to go through is going to send you right into the Purell. Oh, I have severe OCD. This is already my brightest <laughs> fever dream. <laughs> Jessica's going to have peeled off a significant amount of her skin by the time this episode is over. <laughs> <laughs> she's just gonna get out the cheese grater um mm. trying to get the viruses off uh, one of these days i'm just gonna learn how to hover just by <laughs> force of disgust alone <laughs> she will never touch another person without barbecue tongs ever again <laughs> <laughs> good thing i was never one for your human love. You can also be an asymptomatic carrier after you stop showing symptoms and after you believe that you are cured. So this is a convalescent carrier, and it is a common way for hepatitis B to be spread. Not everybody who gets hepatitis B will have symptoms. Not everybody who has symptoms will become a convalescent carrier. But around 5-10% to 10 of people who recover from hep B symptoms will be unable to clear the virus from their bodies, and they will become chronic asymptomatic carriers. So if you if you have a Hep B infection, you've got about a five to ten percent chance that you can spread it to other people forever. So be careful out there. Basically, um, sometimes though, asymptomatic carriers are asymptomatic forever. They never develop any form of symptoms. The disease either runs its course, and they just never knew that they were an asymptomatic carrier at all. Or it lives in their body forever. Yeah, so they just they just hang out with it like a pet. <clears throat> yeah, it just kind of lives in your colon, just comes out. It's just the gift you can keep on giving forever. <laughs> so this is a quote-unquote classic asymptomatic carrier, and this is what Mary Mallon is believed to have been. Just for extra uh, bonus body horror, you can also be something called posse-symptomatic. So this is a person who only has very mild symptoms, or symptoms that are so mild that it doesn't resemble the virus they actually have. So they aren't aware that they're carrying a potentially very deadly disease. So if, if you get extremely mild symptoms of something like coronavirus, uh, for instance, you, you can be a saying. posse symptomatic. You're not a true asymptomatic carrier, but you pose the same health risk. I'm already breaking out in hives. I think I'm getting. I think I'm. I think I'm acquiring a disease just by listening to this. <laughs> if if you hear a chewing sound in the background of this podcast, it's Jessica eating a whole pack of Lysol wipes. <laughs> <laughs> just downing them one after another. Just. I'm basically. You know how like when you pull one, like another one comes out with it. I'm basically just slurping them up like a really long noodle. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's gonna be a neat magic trick. Uh, Every time I burp, I taste bleach. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Your colon is gonna smell of lavender right before it uh, dissolves. <laughs> uh, don't worry, I, I can breathe and swallow at the same time. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think choking to death is the biggest health hazard that comes with eating Lysol wipes. <laughs> Again, this is probably not new information for anyone who's watching the news, but from a public health standpoint, an asymptomatic carrier is an absolute nightmare because they have, they're actively contagious, but they don't know that they are sick. So since they don't know that they are sick, they don't take steps to avoid infecting other people. And other people don't take steps to protect themselves from them. You know, when you see a guy hacking up a lung on a bus, you don't sit next to that guy. You go sit next to the dude who doesn't have any obvious symptoms. But that guy could still be contagious. Like, th this is the whole problem. Likewise, if you are the one who's hacking up a lung, you tend to stay home. You, at the very least, like, don't smush your face into other people. You know, you, you keep your distance. Unless you're Janelle, in which case you fell a small private high school. <laughs> <laughs> you doom a town to the darkness and disease. <laughs> I am a human plague rat. And then Balto runs up and bites you. <laughs> Just to save you from yourself. <laughs> See, I, I have the exact opposite problem. Where rather than being an asymptomatic carrier, I have all the symptoms, but I'm not actually contagious because my my body is just so anxious all the time about disease that anytime I'm upset, it just gives me one for free. <laughs> <laughs> just psychosomatic infections everywhere. <laughs> I can't I can't give people what I've got unless I spend about eight years traumatizing them. And showing them slides of <laughs> slides of horrific infections. <laughs> Come here, I'm gonna give you anxiety. Hypochondria, not terribly contagious. <laughs> but yeah, anytime I'm significantly upset, my lungs fill with liquid. <laughs> well, at least you can't spread it. I mean, I'm filled with snot, but none of it's for you. <laughs> it's my snot. I'm just hoarding it. <laughs> Disrupting mucus supply lines elsewhere. The only saving grace we have today regarding asymptomatic transmission is that we know that it's a thing. So, you know, you can get tested for it. If, if you test positive for COVID, you generally believe that you have it and you will stop lap dancing other people. I don't know what people are doing to get coronavirus. That's is... how. That's what the most recent outbreak in Vancouver happened. Oh, that is true. <laughs> that is true. Don't... Yeah, don't give lap dances if you're COVID positive. Again, I feel like this is not controversial advice. <laughs> I've heard worse advice from the the health authorities, specifically the health authorities of New York, that uh, suggested getting creative and using physical barriers such as walls during sex. That's my and, absolute favorite. Uh, I was not expecting glory holes to be a recommendation. <laughs> I feel like if you're at a point in life where using a glory hole will generally improve your public health outlook, the coronavirus is the least of your problems. <laughs> yeah, the fact that New York City sent out like an official notice that was like, hey, no rim jobs, they're bad for public health. Like, what an age we live in. And I mean, even today, we don't really understand it. 
Like, we understand that it happens, but we don't understand why some people become asymptomatic carriers. We also don't understand really why some viruses have very high rates of asymptomatic transmission and others don't. There's there's still a lot we don't know about bacteria and viruses, which is something you've probably picked up on as you spent three months in your house hiding from one. So the, the factors that basically go into how scary a disease is and how much potential it has for a very serious pandemic is basically how contagious it is, how much of how much asymptomatic transmission there is, how sick it makes people, and how fatal it can be. So, for instance, the Epstein-Barr virus, which is a member of the herpes family, has a very, very high rate of asymptomatic transmission, but you probably have no idea if you've had it, because it just makes so few people sick. Almost 95% of American adults have Epstein-Barr antibodies, which suggests that they've had it at some point. It's it's almost an inevitability. <laughs> it's like everyone get like that's that's sort of what people mean when they say everybody's had herpes. You like, have. <laughs> like a lot of a lot of people have had some variation of herpes. <laughs> not all herpes is of the mouth slash genital variety. It's <laughs> not all herpes. Hashtag not all herpes. Do not start that hashtag. <laughs> But, like, some diseases are so deadly, they can't actually be terribly contagious, and they can't move around very easily. Ebola's an example of that. Yes. You will explosively poop yourself to death, but it's gonna happen so fast. (laughs) Well, this is actually the reason that coronavirus- Coronavirus that we're dealing with now is SARS-CoV-2. But there are two very closely related coronaviruses called SARS and uh, MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. That kind of came up in the last 15 years, but the reason that they didn't turn into pandemics is because they are too fatal. Um, well, rather, SARS was more serious than coronavirus, but it's it just wasn't contagious enough. It didn't get enough of a foothold in the population. But MERS was too fatal. It, it It's too serious. It Yeah. It's it, also it, camel adjacent, which is the most stereotypical shit I've ever heard. Wow. Well, the, the, the current virus is pangolin adjacent, so... I don't Dude, know. Who's stereotypes we... about pangolins? Most people don't even know they exist. That is keep true. talking about bats. <laughs> I told my mom that the coronavirus, like, it, it, people are blaming bats, but apparently there's a, there's a good evidence that it also could have come from pangolins, which are sometimes consumed in traditional medicine, or they just, they come yeah. into contact with people. If you have no idea what a pangolin is, just imagine Sandshrew from Pokemon. It is basically a Sandshrew, and my mom, like, didn't know what it was, and she looked it up. And she was so annoyed because she's like, I want to hate it so badly, but it's so cute. (laughs) She's like, it ruined my livelihood, but look at it. (laughs) It's like if an anteater was also a pinecone. It's adorable. (laughs) It does look like an anteater that's also a pinecone. It's kind of the perfect... Everyone else can go home. That's the perfect explanation. Um, A fun one that's spread mostly through asymptomatic infection is chlamydia. Uh, there's a popular myth. I was taught in high school, at least, that men don't get symptoms of chlamydia and women do. But it turns out that that's actually not the case. 75% of women never show obvious symptoms of chlamydia, and 50% of men don't. So it actually gives men symptoms more often. My dumbest friend in high school wrote himself a sick note to get out of band practice, and he wrote that he couldn't come to band because he had chlamydia and then forged his mom's signature. That was... <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah. I you get the clap. I wonder if that guy's still alive. Probably not. 
<laughs> but then my teacher gave us all a very uncomfortable lecture about asymptomatic chlamydia. So that was wholly unnecessary as I was trying to learn how to play the saxophone. But being, even if you have asymptomatic chlamydia, it can permanently destroy your re- uh, your reproductive system. So, oh fun. Probably get tested, people. But another disease that can spread through asymptomatic carriers is, of course, typhoid. Typhoid is one of those diseases that we tend to think of as being in the past. Like, I kind of put it in the same category as, like, polio and cholera. Like, it, it just feels like an 18th century steamship disease. It doesn't feel like a thing. Yeah, it's like gout. <laughs> yeah, I, I genuinely thought this was extinct. Like, I, I... My dad got gout. How did your dad get gout? In the uh, 16th century? <laughs> <laughs> Alcohol. <laughs> I mean, I guess. Alcohol and rich food. Less fun than having seven wives and going hunting. Than getting gutted by a boar. Good old Henry. Hearing the phrase typhoid Mary, at least like for my sheltered suburban Canadian upbringing, hearing about typhoid Mary was kind of the only time I ever thought about typhoid. Um, but it does still exist today, I was horrified to learn. Typhoid is quite rare in the United States, with roughly 400 cases per year, and we do have treatments available. But to understand, I mean, typhoid, it's quite rare to die of it. It's, it's rare to get it, but if you do get it, chances are you're going to survive and you won't have complications. But, like, still don't. <laughs> it's, it's, a bit like, it's a bit like leprosy, where, like, nowadays you just, you can pretty easily get it treated. You don't have to live on a colony anymore. Like, but, you know, don't, don't. let your fingers fall off. <laughs> More groundbreaking <laughs> medical advice. Um, so to really understand like the life of Mary Mallon and why they took this so seriously, you need to understand how scary typhoid was before antibiotics were really a thing. So to start, it's important to make the distinction between typhus and typhoid. They have similar names because they have similar symptoms and they are similarly deadly. And typhoid actually means resembling typhus, which is not helpful in any way, shape, or form. Aw, oh, man. I'm gonna name a kid Jessicoid. <laughs> resembling Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> not even you resemble a Jessica. I don't know where you're going with that. There's a lot of people who just call me Peugeot just because I think the feminine Jessica is just off-putting. <laughs> it's too much. People have begged me to let them call me Jesse. <laughs> Like, I was, I was just talking to you earlier about, like, how my friend had this kind of loser boyfriend who kept, like, he I'm was pretty sure intentionally misgendering me and referring to me to he, as he or him because he was dead certain I was a trans woman. And, you know, he just found it too difficult, you know. It's just, it's so hard ignoring the, the, the masculine signs of my male biology. And, like, the entire time we're like, no, dude, like, I'm legit two X chromosomes, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Surprising as it is. You are not as good as spotting this an Adam's apple as you think you are. (laughs) Or, you know, whatever gender chromosomes are for your species. (laughs) You have have the female variety. YYQ, you know. (laughs) Typhus comes from insect bites. Uh, in the United States, it's now commonly spread through flea bites. But you c- it's still very much a thing you can get today. You can run out into a field and get Lyme disease and typhus at the same time. Knock yourself out. But uh, typhoid comes from usually from contaminated food and drink or contaminated water. You cannot get typhoid from an insect. 
Typhoid fever, which is usually just known as typhoid, is a bacterial infection that is caused by a certain type of the salmonella bacteria. This is not the same as the salmonella infection that you get from, like, common food poisoning. Typhoid is much more serious. Has Jessica died? Oh, no. <laughs> I was just like, the I was like, did Jessica pass out? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just staring into the middle dis distance, thinking about getting swarmed and eaten alive by fleas. <laughs> ah, Jessica's I'm... in her happy place. <laughs> Just them taking me down like a, a pack of lions on a gazelle. <laughs> <laughs> you live in Canada, Jessica. I think you'll be fine. <laughs> Not a lot of typhus to go around. Not a lot of fleas to go around. You live in downtown Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, I've been to East Hastings. We've got fleas. Not enough to physically overcome you like a flea typhoon. I think you'll be fine. <laughs> Very dramatic. A flea um, typhoon of typhus. Yes, well, non-typhoid salmonella is unpleasant. It causes uh, gastroenteritis, which is an inflammation of your stomach and everything down. It's it's all your lower gastrointestinal tract. If you've had food poisoning, you know it sucks. It's diarrhea, vomiting, abdominal pain. You can get a fever in some cases, you pretty much feel like you're going to die for, like, maybe two to three days. You might feel sick for up to two weeks. But it's it's rarely fatal in the developed world. Yeah. When I was 12, I spent two weeks in the bathtub. Because that was, that was the closest place I could both sleep and, and vomit with ease. <laughs> you just spent two weeks in a tub leaking? <laughs> yeah, just from every possible orifice. Oh, this, this, this whole episode is going to be one big flashback for you. <laughs> I just, it was like, I'm just going back to the jungles of Nam and just shitting myself, <laughs> shitting myself inside out for seven days straight. That's so unpleasant. Uh, <laughs> so unpleasant. I ate a bad melon. <laughs> that was the end of me. <laughs> How did you get food poisoning from a melon? That really, that's some talent. I, I don't, we don't know if it was food poisoning or if, like, they were, it was tainted with something. But, uh, yeah, it just destroyed me physically and psychologically. <laughs> like, it's it's to this day where, like, if I'm really, really upset, like, I will just hide in the bathtub. Because <laughs> that's, that's the place where I feel safe. Where is your god now, Jessica? It's not in this cantaloupe, I'll tell you that. can't get me here. Not with the power of modern hygiene. <laughs> Great. Well, now that I know I have the power to destroy you psychologically with a honeydew anytime I feel <laughs> like it. <laughs> it's good to know. <laughs> but yeah, if you if you get non-typhoid salmonella, like, have some Gatorade. That really is kind of the main thing. Keep up your electrolytes. Basically, the big risk is dehydration. Avoid it. Have some Gatorade. You'll be fine. Typhoid, on the other hand, is what is called an enteric fever. It is an acute, life-threatening infection of your entire digestive tract. So, like, esophagus to asshole. All of it is inflamed it. and mad at you. <laughs> you're just you're just an angry tube of hate. <laughs> you are an angry tube of hate. Without treatment, the symptoms of typhoid usually last for around four weeks. They are not a fun four weeks. Uh, they can drag on for a lot longer. You're not going to feel fine for quite a while. 
And you may have complications that last the rest of your life. Again, this is without treatment. So if you have untreated typhoid for some reason as you listen to this podcast, please go to the doctor. But in the first week of a typhoid infection, you will not feel good. There's usually about a two to three week incubation period between when you are first, uh, when you're first infected with it and when you actually come down with symptoms. So in your first week of the actual infection, you're going to feel shitty. Your temperature is going to rise steadily. You'll get headaches and a cough. You're just generally not going to feel very well. Around one in four people also begin to develop nosebleeds, which is terrifying because your white blood cell count starts to drop. Abdominal pain might also set in during week one. You're not going to feel well, but you're probably not going to suspect that, like, this catastrophic infection is coming. But by week two, you are really not in good shape. The fever typically stabilizes at a dangerously high 40 degrees Celsius. That's about 104 Fahrenheit. It's not, that's not a pleasant state to be in. Um... You actually will become delirious. You can become quite delirious with agitated episodes. You could cook an egg on your chest, but you probably shouldn't. You probably shouldn't. It's not going to help with the agitation or delirium if people start cracking (laughs) eggs on you. Nobody's (laughs) mental state has ever been improved because somebody used them to cook breakfast. It's, uh... Bring a camp camp stove or a person suffering the depths of typhoid. (laughs) Also, if you eat those eggs, you're probably going to get typhoid. Yeah, like, <laughs> we'll have plenty. We'll have plenty of fuel to cook for next week. Just, just keep us going on enteric fever. This is not sustainable, Jessica. <laughs> you're not going to be able to cook when your stove dies. But yeah, you've got this dangerously high fever. You become delirious, which is why typhoid was sometimes known as nervous fever throughout human history. Uh, you develop brachycardia, which is where your heartbeat starts to slow down, and you sometimes can get an irregular heartbeat pattern. At this point, you're probably too weak to stand, your breath starts rattling, and you develop either diarrhea or constipation. That's a fun choice. So fun! Around one-third of people will develop red spots on the abdomen, which is quite characteristic of typhoid. And most will have abdominal pain because your liver and spleen begin to swell. There's nothing quite like the pain of your liver trying to leave its cavity. But week three is where the real fun begins. So week three is when you are in serious danger. You are at risk of an intestinal hemorrhage, which is deeply unpleasant, but not normally fatal. Sorry, you're you're just shitting blood. Yeah, you're just shitting blood. Or you can get an intestinal perforation, which is so unpleasant I'm hesitant to even describe it, but it can and absolutely does kill people. How do I phrase this in a way that won't make Jessica vomit into her microphone? Too far uh, gone. <laughs> your intestine is a tube that holds poop, and when there is a hole in the tube that holds poop, nothing good happens. <laughs> you just imagine a hose with a with a spi- like with a hole in it, except that hole is leaking poop, and it's, it's not leaking it into your yard. It's leaking it into the rest of your body, and the result is fucking sepsis. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not good today. People die from this even with treatment. Um, in modern medicine. So you you really don't want an intestinal perforation. Uh, You are also at risk of developing bronchitis, pneumonia, and encephalitis, which is uh, not great. None of that is great. Swelling of the brain. But encephalitis is when your brain begins to swell. So your delirium will get much worse, and you enter a stage called muttering delirium, 
where you're just restless and muttering and picking at your own skin and clothes because your brain is too big for your skull, which is... Your gray matter's too big for its case. (laughs) You also begin to experience inflammation of the gallbladder, heart, and bones, which... Uh, I honestly didn't know that inflammation... Bone inflammation? Bone inflammation. It's a possibility. Fuck off, bone inflammation. Bone inflammation. Inflammation of the bones, which cannot be comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) See, I was just thinking that this was like when you unpack a tent and you try to get it back in the original, like... The original casing? Yeah, it's it's called osteomyelitis. It's actually what my grandmother's younger sister died of. In, oh, fun. like, 1917 or something. It's, we have kids real late in my family. Don't count those years. Uh, but if you survive all of the unpleasantness that week three has to offer, you enter the final phase, which is recovery. So your fever bre- breaks, your energy starts to return. Um, most people do shake off the worst of the symptoms in that week. But it can take two to three months before you really have your strength back and you start to feel like yourself again. Neuropsychiatric complications can last for the rest of your life, though. Having two weeks of brain swelling is just not good for you. Yeah. Who would know? Encephalitis can do some pretty serious permanent damage. Um, Without treatment, typhoid has a death rate of 10 to 30%. The the era we're talking about, the 19th century, is in the United States, it, it tended to be on the lower end. It was, I think, 13-ish percent. 30% is more of a developing country number, but uh, some pretty prominent people throughout history have been taken out by typhoid. Abraham Lincoln's political opponent died from it in 1861, and his son died from it the following year. William Henry Harrison, the ninth and shortest serving president, died from typhoid, or a typhoid-related illness, 32 days into his term. So, he had a rough go. I think I know that one, actually. The Harrison one. It was because there was, um... There, uh... The, uh... The night soil, or the shit, from the White House was being taken upstream. And it was just sort of, like, filtering back into the water. Mmm! So, like, a lot of people, in a very short period of time, died in the White House. Over, like, the course of several years. Because, Water uh, is often the culprit. It is... Spoiler alert, Mary Mellon mostly spread typhoid through tainted food, but tainted water is usually the culprit. It's usually where um, you have improperly handled sewage that's getting in contact with drinking water. So when typhoid strikes, it tends to, like, take out half a village. It doesn't... It's it's rare to have isolated cases of typhoid. It's usually something's in the water supply, and everybody gets it. Typhoid outbreaks are a result of how we, as a society, have been historically shitting into each other's mouths. Pretty much. It's it's all disgusting. Every every single bit of this is disgusting. The composer Franz Schubert, the co-inventor of the airplane Wilbur Wright, and Prince Albert, husband of Queen Victoria and namesake of a terrible piercing, uh, are all also believed to have died from typhoid fever. So, like, famous rich people die from this. This is... it's It's been treated throughout history as a poor person's disease, but it does... Nobody's immune to typhoid. Typhoid's coming for you. The good news is that with modern medicine, the fatality rate is 0.2% and there are almost never long-term complications. But even in today's era, if you get typhoid, it leads to a hospitalization for an average of six days. The other big difference between typhoid and non-typhoid salmonella, your run-of-the-mill food poisoning, is where it comes from. You're a person who eats food. You're probably aware that salmonella comes from eating raw meat or eggs that are contaminated with salmonella or from contaminated fruits and vegetables. 
Just taking a raw chicken titty and just throwing it against a wall five times before you bake it. No, it's actually, you don't actually need to contaminate the meat. It's in the meat when you get it. Yeah, but I'm going to do it anyway, okay, Janelle? Don't, do, <laughs> you're a vegetarian. A Why are you slapping raw chicken tits against the wall? <laughs> just for my own amusement. <laughs> Put the chicken titties down, Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> they did not, they did not hurt you. I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to eat them, but like, I am going to play with them. <laughs> disturbing somehow that's worse please just eat them (laughs) (laughs) but with but with food poisoning the salmonella is actually in the meat or in the eggs like you get it it's already in there and you have to cook it properly to kill the salmonella bacteria so salmonella is the reason that your parents always told you that you couldn't eat raw cookie dough because the raw egg in the cookie dough can theoretically make you sick uh if you're a millennial or younger you have probably never met or even known of anyone who got sick from raw cookie dough, because it's it's more of an artifact of our parents' generation. It's incredibly rare for an egg to be contaminated these days. There were some huge crackdowns on egg safety after there were some pretty major outbreaks of salmonella in the 1980s, and the CDC now estimate that only one in 20,000 eggs actually contains a salmonella contamination. So, like, officially, you shouldn't eat raw eggs, but if... The rush of cookie dough makes you feel alive? Like, I guess. (laughs) There are more dangerous things you could be doing. And if you just have a very specific kink where you just want to unhinge your jaw and swallow whole eggs like a, like a, like a, like a snake, you know, no judgment here. A little bit of judgment. A a little bit. A A scorch of judgment. (laughs) A smidgen of judgment. Um, Typhoid, on the other hand, cannot be contracted from animals you cannot get typhoid from eating undercooked chicken well i mean you can but it's not from the chicken no it's definitely from the 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 short order chef who didn't wipe yeah or from jessica slamming the titty into the wall um, <laughs> <laughs> the, i wonder how many times you'd have to slap a chicken tit into the wall before the kinetic energy would cook the chicken i'm sure somebody has done the math i i feel no desire to do it <laughs> I feel like it's probably a genuinely insane and unjustifiable number of times, but yeah, oh yeah, at a, at a certain point, you're just wearing out the joint in your shoulder. <laughs> awesome, but no, uh, typhoid can only be contracted from humans. We are the only species capable of catching or carrying typhoid, specifically Ooh. in our lower digestive tract. That's where we carry it. If you catch my drift. And my drift is poop. It's in our poop. (laughs) By my drift, I mean a horrific virus. Yep. You have to come into contact with human waste products. Uh, So human urine or fecal matter. Yay! And uh, that's the only way to catch it. Piss, 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 piss. Are you chanting piss? (laughs) Yes! It's how I'm coping. <laughs> I'm so sweaty. <laughs> this sounds like the audio to a fetish video. <laughs> Settle down. I'm pretty sure if I put a video of me just in like, you know, lace underwear and garters, just throwing a chicken tit, <laughs> a raw chicken breast at a wall, somebody would jack off to it. <laughs> Well, now I'm the one who's sweating. If I put that up on Pornhub, I'd get some views. 
from who? The Interpol? Like, there's no way that <laughs> humanity would allow that to stand. That's I don't know. They have, they have videos of people eating cereal out of other people's butts on there. <laughs> yeah, well, that's... <laughs> that is art, Jessica. What you're doing is disturbing. Milk included. I don't think Captain Crunch approved of his name being used in such a way. There are there are limits to human depravity, and Jessica is determined to find them. <laughs> oh, just incredible. So, Mary Mallon was born on September 23rd, 1869, in the town of Cookston, County Tyrone, in modern-day Northern Ireland. We really don't know a lot about her childhood, but sources indicated that she was orphaned as a child. I have no idea if her parents died of typhoid. I... <laughs> If they did, nobody ever said. But um, she was raised by her grandmother in Ireland. It's not known for sure how she contracted typhoid, but it's believed the most likely explanation is that she was actually born with it. Her mother mm. was infected with typhoid during her pregnancy, and it can be passed to a to a fetus or to a child during birth. So, so she might have always literally had typhoid. They think she was born with typhoid. Like, she had typhoid from birth. And they don't think they that she won. ever had symptoms. Like she, she came out of the womb with typhoid. Is is what's believed. <laughs> is what's believed because she reported that she had never had it. She'd never had symptoms of anything. <laughs> Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's a horrific disease. <laughs> I don't think that marketing slogan is going to catch Maybe on. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's typhoid. <laughs> typhoid. <laughs> Who boy. <laughs> So at the age of 15, Mary immigrated to America and she settled in the Lower East Side of New York City, which was a cramped and overwhelmingly poor immigrant neighborhood at the time. But like most women in her situation, Mary found work as a maid and domestic servant. What Mary had going for her that many women in her situation did not was that she was, by all contemporary accounts, kind of an incredible cook. She was apparently very talented, uh -oh. not only at preparing meals, but at managing a kitchen and serving a varied menu, which were highly valued skills. Um, New York City was going through a bit of a foodie period at that point in the 19th century. So rich families wanted talented cooking staff. They wanted all the trendiest meals from around the world. So to be a successful chef at that time actually took quite a bit of talent. Cooking also paid a lot better than being a servant or a washerwoman, and Mary saw this as her ticket out of poverty. So she apparently padded her resume a little bit to get her foot in the door working in a rich New York City family kitchen, and she worked her way up from a scullery maid to head cook in some extremely wealthy homes. So in 1906, Mary was hired by a wealthy banker named Charles Henry Warren, who brought her to a house in Oyster Bay that his family was renting for the summer. Oyster Bay is a small, extremely wealthy community in Nassau County, Long Island, which is just outside of New York City. The, the place that they were renting was pretty swanky. It was down the street from Theodore Roosevelt's residence, Sagamore Hall, which he used as the summer White House. So this was this neighborhood was almost painfully fancy. Uh, within three weeks of Mary's arrival, six of the 11 people in the house had fallen ill with typhoid. With what we know now, that's pretty much on the dot because, again, typhoid has an incubation period of three weeks before symptoms develop. So she just, she just gave it to them immediately. Yeah, she does. It's typhoid. Don't play. Typhoid. Don't play that Typh way, babe. Typhoid does not. It's 
It's not shy. Like <laughs> <laughs> It's not one of those demure, highly contagious diseases. No, it gets oh, right no. in there. Typhoid is a saucy gal. Having a typhoid outbreak in Oyster Bay caused quite a stir, because even in those days, it was very rare to have typhoid outbreaks among the upper class. They pay good money not to have people shit in their mouths. They do. It's it's 1906. Like the, there are definitely still people living in in what are known as cold water flats. That was what the poor lived in in New York City for quite some time. They had limited running water, certainly no hot water. News of the outbreak sent the landlord who owned the rental house into a panic, and he decided to get to the bottom of the outbreak not out of concern for human life. But for the noblest cause of all, which was property value. Money, dear boy. Money. The landlord knew that having a typhoid outbreak on his property could completely tank his rental value and make it impossible for him to continue renting out the house. Typhoid was heavily stigmatized because it was strongly associated with poverty, filth, poor sanitation, and the lower classes. Outbreaks of typhoid are just more common in neighborhoods where you have communal outhouses no or limited running water than they are in neighborhoods that have working flush toilets and maids to scrub them spotless. It's just how it works. If you've got the resources to clean yourself, you're less likely to get it. That's just it. When you when you can pay somebody to scrub the poop off of things before you put them in your mouth, you're pretty much golden. Although in 1906, doctors had largely embraced germ theory, it hadn't been completely accepted by the general public. A lot of people at that time still subscribed to something called miasma theory, which was a somewhat, I mean, not somewhat, a, a very classist and xenophobic explanation for outbreaks that used to be the prevailing theory of disease and remains the U.S. immigration policy to this day. Oh, snap. <laughs> had to, had had to get that in there. to you that the poor are stinky? <laughs> And Basically, maybe their stinkiness is what's getting us sick. That's Jessica just explained miasma theory better than <laughs> Wikipedia ever could. Miasma theory is quite literally the idea that disease is caused by bad air that lingers over gross, unclean places. Poor neighborhoods in those days had a bit of a funk to them. You've got a lot of garbage, horse manure, outhouses, people without access to showers. They're all running around in the heat. The rich believe that the stink of those poor areas actually caused disease. So, if your house was known to have the filthy stink of the proletariat fogging the place up and infecting people, nobody would rent it. To get to the bottom of the outbreak, a sanitation engineer named George Sofer was contacted to investigate. Water from the toilets, taps, pipes, and cesspool were tested, but nothing came back positive for typhoid. Tainted food was also ruled out as a possibility, as all homes in the area bought from the same vendors, and there had been no other outbreaks in Oyster Bay. Sofer then began to investigate the house staff, and when he learned that a new cook had joined the staff three weeks before the outbreak, which he knew to be Uh the incubation period of typhoid, he was pretty sure he'd found the source of the problem. (laughs) Math, dear boy. (laughs) I've done it. I've subtracted 21 from whatever day it is today. (laughs) At this point in time, the idea that a person could be a carrier of typhoid even without symptoms was somewhat of a radical idea, and it had never really been proven before. I don't want to give too many spoilers to a story that you already know, but Mary Mellon was the first identified asymptomatic carrier of typhoid in U.S. history. So she was a big deal. Zophar's suspicions about the whole thing grew when he learned what Mary's signature dish was. 
Everywhere that she worked as a cook, Mary was known for making a dessert called Peach Melba. This was a very fashionable dessert at the time, and it consisted of fresh peaches served over vanilla uh, vanilla ice cream and topped with raspberry sauce or puree. And this is, you have to remember, back in a day when people are largely making their own ice cream. It sounds absolutely delightful, but uncooked, which is uh, questionable. (laughs) Which is the problem. The issue is that no part of Peach Melba, except maybe the raspberry sauce, is cooked. Even if Mary wasn't washing her hands properly before she handled, like, raw meat and potatoes, those items are cooked to high enough temperatures that they kill off the pathogens she would have transferred to them. So it's actually relatively low risk for Mary to be preparing things like that, as long as she's not really touching the cooked food. Uh, Peach Melba, on the other hand, is not heated. She was touching the fresh fruit with her hands, and then people would just put it in their mouths and eat it. So to this day, this is believed to be the main way that she actually spread typhoid to the people she cooked for. She made this dish for everybody. Damn it, Mary. Why couldn't have your specialty been chilly? (laughs) Flambe would have saved you. And she would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for fruit. But yeah, even though Sofer was on to Mary, he didn't actually know where she was. Mary never stayed at any job for very long, and once an outbreak of typhoid struck, she would move on to the next job without leaving a forwarding address. In late 1906, after her stint in Oyster Bay, Mary went to work for a wealthy man named Walter Bowen, who lived in a penthouse on Park Avenue. The nice part of Park Avenue, not the part where Janelle used to live. <laughs> there are uh, I like how many articles about Typhoid Mary just like confidently stated like Park Avenue that's nice I'm like mm, well is it though parts it though? of it <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you're aware of this but avenues and streets are often very long <laughs> avenues run the full length of Manhattan they're quite long I didn't live on Park Avenue but there was uh, the local meth dealer did so oh good for him good for him or uh, I don't. I don't want to be sexist. No, it's it's a him. You already knew it. <laughs> <laughs> Male-dominated industry. It's really just sad. The glass ceiling for female drug dealers. <laughs> the glass ceiling for dealing glass. <laughs> I I mean, ten out of ten for wordplay, but like th- three out of ten for societal impact. It's a living. Uh, Mary was hired in December of 1906, and by the end of January 1907, the family maid and one other servant got sick with typhoid, and the Bowen family's only daughter fell sick and died shortly afterwards. Sofer was again hired to investigate this outbreak, and when he discovered that Mary had recently joined the staff, he figured he'd found the source of the outbreak. He'd now tracked her to two major sources of typhoid in houses where he would not expect to see them. This was the first time that Sofer and Mary actually met in person. He came to the Bowen household and confronted her with his findings while she was working with the kitchen. It, um, it did not go well. In his own record, Sofer claims that he was, quote, as diplomatic as possible when he informed Mary that she was the one spreading typhoid. Mary didn't actually write her side of the story down, so we will never really know for sure. He told her that she was a carrier of a deadly illness and that he needed to take some urine and stool samples from her. Excuse me, madam, may I have your piss? <laughs> well, Mary wasn't having it, and so she attacked him with a meat fork. Oh boy. Which is what you do when a strange man asks you for poo at your work. 
I would do no different, madam. I would do no different. A strange man shows up at your place of business, asking you to pee in a jar. (laughs) You attack him with that fork. So she drove him out of the kitchen. So for himself wrote, quote, she seized a carving fork and advanced in my direction. I passed rapidly down the long, narrow hall towards the tall iron gate, out through the area, and so to the sidewalk. I felt rather lucky to escape. Apparently, Mary did not understand that I wanted to help her. (laughs) I mean, in fairness, I can see where she's coming from. Mary had never been sick with typhoid. Again, as she was so fond of saying, she was never sick a day in her life. She wasn't a medical professional, and even medical professionals weren't really sold on the idea of an asymptomatic carrier just yet. From her perspective, this guy was just a random lunatic accusing her of spreading a disease and then asking for her poo. (laughs) Admittedly a bit of a weird situation. Mary also argued that it made no sense to blame her for this because she argued that typhoid was common. Which, from her perspective... I bet she saw it all the time! I'm sure that it was! Every three weeks after she gets a new job, in fact... She's just, from her perspective, the whole city is just riddled with typhoid. Everywhere she goes, just Everybody typhoid, gets typhoid, it. typhoid. Her whole <laughs> life, she she was born with this. I can only imagine how many people she actually exposed yeah. to typhoid throughout her life. And I mean, of course she's never been sick in a, a day in her life. It's hard to get a disease you already have. So when Mary refused to provide the sample, Sofer decided to build a case against her to prove that she was the source of the recent outbreaks so that she could be forced to give samples. He began digging around in her past by contacting employment agencies and discovered that from 1900 to 1907, she had been employed by eight families in the greater NYC area and seven of them had suffered outbreaks of typhoid. In 1900, she worked at a house in Memronek, Westchester County, where several residents had fallen ill within two to three weeks of her arrival. In 1901, she went to work for a family in Manhattan, Again, several members of the household were sickened and the laundress died. She then went to work for a prominent local lawyer and seven out of the eight members of the household came down with typhoid. Ooh, she's got good numbers. She's... She's, she's racking them up. In 1904, she was hired by another prominent lawyer, Henry Gilsey. In this case, the servants resided in a separate house from the rest of the family, so the family didn't actually get sick. Four of the seven servants, however, did. The laundress was the first to become ill, and so she was the one who was blamed for the outbreak. After that outbreak, she took a job in the home of a man named George Kessler, and sure enough, two weeks after she arrived, the laundress was hospitalized with typhoid. This lady's just decking laundresses right, left and right. I, I had it in my notes. I was like, does Mary lick laundresses? History does not say. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, like, they're dealing with the family's dirty laundry, so, I mean, I... I guess they have more exposure i don't know she's consistently just taken out the laundry maid i have no idea if they've wronged her in some way or if maybe she was a particular fan of laundresses so she fed them more ice cream i really don't know so sofer actually wrote and published an article about mary in the june 1907 edition of the journal of the american medical association he writes quote malin was described as an irish woman about 40 years of age Tall, heavy, single. She seemed to be in perfect health. I also would be mad if I was being described like a farm heifer in a medical journal. <laughs> Gotta say. She sounds like livestock. She's Excellent tall, teeth. hefty, and single. Good breeding stock. Which is, incidentally, uh, almost the name of this podcast. 
I mean, we're very short, both of us, but otherwise, yes. Short, heavy, and single. (laughs) Single is an unmarried. I'm still very much in a relationship with a Frenchman who's currently devolving into Mowgli in a (laughs) dark Manhattan apartment he hasn't left in three months. It's great. Um, whereas, whereas I'm just receiving unsolicited romantic overtures from a former Hong Kong drug dealer. So we both have things going for us. <laughs> Basically the same. Um, in fairness, Sofer did describe Mary elsewhere as, quote, five foot six inches, a blonde with clear blue eyes, a healthy color, and a somewhat determined mouth and jaw. I don't know if that's just because she was currently stabbing him with a meat fork, but... Sure. Um, But it's this 1907 article where the nickname Typhoid Mary gets its origin. Medical textbooks of the day actually started calling her by that name. Uh, If if you looked up typhoid in a medical textbook, you could quite literally see Mary's picture. Um, Well, or at least get her name. They're actually actually catty. Probably not her picture. There's actually only like two existing photos of Typhoid Mary. Artist Um, renderings. She looks pissed in both of them. <laughs> there's there's her like portrait, which was probably used for her immigration purposes. But then there's also a picture where she's in forcible quarantine, and she's big mad. There's there's <laughs> there's two. So there's three. There's three. I think total existing photos of Typhoid Mary. One of them is like the famous picture where she's in the bed, and she is not having it. So she didn't enjoy any part of this process, and I can't blame her. She hated that nickname all her life. She once said, I wonder how the said Dr. William H. Park, which is the person whose care she was in for most of her life, would like to be insulted and put in the journal and call him or his wife Typhoid William Park. (laughs) But uh, determined to get his jars of poo, George Sofer started digging into Mary's personal life. I was gonna. I thought you were gonna say latrine. So (laughs) I know you want a lady's poo. You gotta dig into her dating life. That's. (laughs) That's how you dig up all the dirt, metaphorically speaking. (laughs) He figured out that she had a long-time off-and-on boyfriend named Alfred Breihoff, a German immigrant who was cohabiting with her out of wedlock. (gasps) The scandal. Scandal. Um, It was actually, I mean, in all fairness, I'm I'm being a dick, but it, it was actually quite scandalous back in the day, and Mary was very upset at having her privacy violated in this way this was this was something that became common knowledge this was this information was publicized that she had this live-in <laughs> all the medical journals are spilling the hot tea of typhoid mary's illicit lover people are not a fan of the irish at this point so having somebody publicize the fact that she was quote-unquote living in sin with a with a man <laughs> it 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 wasn't good. It did a lot of damage to her reputation. Breihoff was a chronically unemployed alcoholic. Uh, he never really could hold down a job, apparently. Ooh. And Mary was supporting both of them and paying the rent on their set of rooms with her wages, which was part of the reason that she needed those higher-paying jobs. She was financially supporting her partner. Got a man to feed. She got a man to feed. Uh, you you get some, girl. Um, Sofer actually figured out where the pair lived, and then he tracked down Bryhoff personally. He apparently bribed him with alcohol to reveal when Mary would be expected home from work. So Sofer teamed up with another doctor, Dr. Raymond Hubler, which is a great name, 
And the pair confronted Mary when she arrived home, once again demanding samples. So this poor woman comes home from work, and there are two doctors at her house who have bribed her boyfriend with alcohol. And they are once again demanding that she poo in a jar. (laughs) Give it to us. Give us your piss. (laughs) Give us the piss. We need the piss. I demand piss. Piss, piss, piss. Mary piss. once again freaked out. They've now majorly overstepped some boundaries. She said that typhoid was everywhere and that it was caused by tainted food and drink and that they were persecuting her for no reason. And I mean, two out of the three parts of that sentence are true. <laughs> she also pointed out that she had stayed to nurse some of the sick and she'd even been tipped by her employers for doing so. Like, she very much felt that they were trying to blame her for spreading this disease. And she was horrified because. She wasn't doing any of this on purpose. She didn't know that she had this condition. But once again, Sofer was driven off and he did not get to collect his precious, precious poo. <laughs> Piss. <laughs> Whatever fluid you want. He, he wanted it. <laughs> I, want, so, I want that liquid gold. <laughs> oh, oh, Jessica, this is just... It's, it's, this bordered into fetish territory a long time ago and this train has no brakes. The piss train has no brakes. Uh, the piss train has never had any brakes. Going oh. all the way to urine town. So this time, Sofer decided he needed reinforcements. He ratted Mary out to the New York City Health Department, who agreed that Mary was a danger to public health. So they sent Josephine, Dr. Josephine Baker. She was a famous physician who worked in poor and immigrant communities and did a lot of work in public health in New York City. She was also getting people first... to stop poisoning their babies. She was. Uh, uh, Josephine Baker was actually quite famous outside of her work with Typhoid Mary. She was a formidable woman in her own right. But uh, she was sent to the home of Mary's employer to try to get samples from Mary while she was at work. She was accompanied by three policemen and had orders to bring Mary in by force if necessary. So... We got a piss posse. <laughs> They're now using police brutality to extract the poo. <laughs> That's where we're at now. <laughs> but this time, Mary was ready for them, and she was having fucking none of it. So she attacked Dr. Baker with her trusty meat fork once again. When the doctor fell backwards into the policeman, Mary fled out the back door and took off running. All the other servants in the house claimed that they didn't know which way she went. Um, just... Just some hashtag servant solidarity that peach, right there. That peach Melba must be real good. They, well, as I mean, they don't understand epidemiology either. From their mm-hmm. perspective, these incredibly weird doctors keep showing up at their work to accuse Mary of spreading a disease that she doesn't have. Like, they are also an underclass, you know, they're, they're servants. They, these are people who work mm. in the homes of the rich. They're the servant underclass. And from their perspective, all these wealthy, upper-class doctors just keep trying to, like, poo-burgle them at work and accuse (laughs) them of spreading disease. They see it as being persecuted. The Irish were often accused of spreading disease back in these days. And they just see it as these rich assholes trying to accuse Mary of something. They're not having it either. So, um, Mary fled into the neighborhood, and it took three hours to track her down. (laughs) Jason Bourne style. (laughs) I mean... Not so glamorous, she was hiding in either a random outhouse or a shed in the neighborhood, sources differ, with huge garbage cans pushed up against the doors, probably by other local servants who were helping to hide her. Uh, Unfortunately, her dress had gotten caught in the door and they found her by the scrap of fabric because 
Everything about this runs on Looney Tunes logic. <laughs> Mary did not go gently into that good night. She put up one hell of a fight, and it took five policemen to wrestle her into the back of an ambulance, and Dr. Baker had to physically sit on her all the way to the hospital. <laughs> She was taken to Willard Parker Hospital, which was a famous infectious disease hospital that used to exist on uh, East 16th Street in Lower Manhattan. At the hospital, Mary was placed in isolation as a, quote, dangerous patient and put into the care of Dr. Robert Wilson and Dr. William Park, the man she asked if he wanted to be typhoid William. (laughs) Um, I take it he didn't. Mary made a valiant attempt to escape the hospital, apparently, but was unsuccessful. She was asked about her hygiene habits, and she admitted that she was not in the habit of washing her hands. In fairness, nobody was. (laughs) Yeah. This is not an era that's real big on hand washing. For She was asked a lot of very invasive questions about her personal hygiene, her personal habits. Uh, This was also something that she resented. She's She's a religious woman. She's a lady, goddammit, and she has all these weird men asking if she wipes back to front. It's all (laughs) way too much. Uh, (laughs) I would be angry, too. It's a bit intrusive. It's a little intrusive. So she's not happy. Stop asking me what I do in the toilets. (laughs) For four days, she was not allowed to go to the bathroom unsupervised so that they could collect her samples. She was... She she tried not to give samples, but they just they they literally followed the poor woman into the bathroom, and like, basically whoop, whoop. made her hover over a pot. Like it's, they got their samples. So, the results were exactly what they expected. Mary was absolutely teeming with the salmonella bacteria that causes typhoid. So on March nineteenth, nineteen o seven, Mary was transferred to Riverside Hospital on North Brother Island. This is a small island in the East River, just off the coast of the Bronx, that used to house isolation and quarantine patients with a variety of communicable diseases. Um, Somewhat after Mary's time, it became a tuberculosis hospital. It was dumping grounds, basically, for the city's sick and contagious. The island is actually currently abandoned, and the public are forbidden to set foot on it. Officially, this is because it's now a bird sanctuary. Unofficially, I assume... Haunted. Ghosts. Just straight up fucking haunted. Uh, <laughs> it's gotta be haunted as fuck. And all the hospitals are still there. Like, the every all the facilities where Mary, Typhoid Mary was kept are still on the island. So just, just big empty asylums filled with yeah, bird shit. Yeah, falling down. Just big tuberculosis isolation wards. Those, there's, I'm sure those are fine. Haunted. Haunted just as fuck. haunted. A hundred percent haunted. And it's it's all being, like, it's slowly rotting and returning to nature. Like, you can find pictures. University students sneak onto it all the time. If you've you've got a boat, you can sneak on there. NYC has actually always dumped its undesirable people on the small islands surrounding Manhattan. Uh, Before Riverside Hospital was moved to North Brother Island, it was on Roosevelt Island, um, which was the dumping grounds until rich people decided they wanted condos with nice views of Manhattan. Uh, today, uh, the city dumps its undesirables on Randalls and Ward's Islands, which is a controversial stance if you live there. Actually, no, not really. Most of the city's homeless shelters, asylums, forensic hospitals, and halfway houses are on Randalls and Ward's Islands. So the city's learned nothing. Nothing at all. Uh, while in quarantine on North Brother Island, Mary was allowed to work as a laundress at the hospital, I guess as divine retribution for the laundresses she killed. <laughs> um... But she was kept separate from the other patients. 
She was living in a one-room isolation cottage of shame elsewhere on the island. She was told that they might be able to cure her by removing her gallbladder. They suspected that that's where the infection lived, but she really wasn't having it. That was not a low-risk surgery back then. You could very well die of infection. And they didn't even know that it would work. They were just sort of... I mean, like, they've been stealing her poop for months, and now they want to steal her organs. They're quite literally taking stabs in the dark here. She's still- they- they didn't- in all the time that Mary was in quarantine, they didn't really make much of an effort to explain any of this to her. Uh, they didn't really go over the research, bust out the literature. They were just sort of coming at this from the stance of like, we know what's best for you and we're trying to help you, and you're being quite difficult, I have to say. Ungrateful. Uh, Do you think we just steal anyone's poop? Mm. The Irish were not- um, respected mm, on any level not treated as intelligent i'm like how do i say this without being without resurrecting the ghost of anti-irish racism i'm half irish fuck it they were the irish were considered ignorant uneducated of low moral and intellectual character so it's very possible that xenophobia played a big role in this that they just she's just an irish cook she's not gonna understand it we are the American doctors. We have all the answers, and she needs to just shut up and piss. Let us do what we want. But Mary, Mary was would not consent to the gallbladder surgery. Uh, she didn't even think she had typhoid, so she was not about to let them start cutting chunks out of her to try to cure it. Uh, the tragic thing is that if she had gone through with the operation and survived, there is actually a very good chance that it would have cured her, based on the concentrations Ta-da. of salmonella that she had. It is probable that it was her gallbladder that was the problem that the bacteria had taken up residence there and that's where the bacterial colony was um we'll never know though this is just like a this is medical professionals speculating on the case but it it is quite possible that that would have worked but there's a chance she would not even have survived the surgery this this was not low risk sofer actually came to visit mary in quarantine because he can't read a fucking room apparently (laughs) can't tell where he's not wanted He partially came to try to help her, and he partially came to brag that he'd totally been right all along and that she was totally a typhoid carrier. Mary was not thrilled to see him. She was furious about being confined to a hospital against her will and subjected to constant invasive questions and tests for a disease that she still did not believe that she had. Sofer offered to write a book about her and split the royalties with her, and Mary lost her ever-loving oh, shit. Boy. She was furious that he was going to cement her legacy as Typhoid Mary, and she locked herself in the bathroom until he left. <laughs> Fair. She just she refused to come out until Sofer was gone. She apparently actually had a nervous breakdown during her first quarantine. The, the trauma of isolation and of having her whole life ripped away from her was just all way too much. Mary did not go down without a fight. She fought her quarantine as hard as she possibly could. She was obliged to give samples three times per week, but she also gave extra samples to independent labs with the help of a friend. All of the samples that she had tested at independent labs came back negative. Additionally, a Hmm. quarter of the samples that she gave at the hospital came back negative. This cemented her belief that she was not actually a carrier of typhoid and she fought hard for her freedom. Uh, To this day, we don't really even have a great medical explanation for why so many tests came back negative. 
It's possible that she periodically went into remission here and there before going back to being an active carrier. Mary was also upset that she was being treated as a guinea pig. They basically threw a lot of treatments at the wall to see what stuck, and of course nothing did. They gave her urotropin for a while, which could have done some pretty serious damage to her kidneys. They then switched her to brewer's yeast, which did nothing. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, She's I feel not like marmite. At some point, when you reach the like, let's feed them yeast part of the healing process, I feel mm-hmm. like we've exhausted what all if, of our options. What if we treated this Irish cook as if she was a sourdough starter? <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful idea. They then tried treating her with a drug called hexamethylamine. None of it did anything. Because of course it didn't. She needed antibiotics. Despite being a hospital patient, she also did not actually have adequate medical care in quarantine. She was not given access to an eye doctor for six months on the island, despite the fact that she developed paralysis in one of her eyelids and had to bandage it shut at night. Ugh. Yeah, it could have been part of the- they never really explained, like, how this happened. I don't know if this was part of the nervous breakdown, if this was a psychosomatic thing, or if she just had some kind of eye issue, but they wouldn't let her see an eye doctor. Mary was just done with all of this. She wanted off the island. She wanted her life back. So she got herself a top lawyer who specialized in medical cases, and it's actually believed that her legal defense may have been completely bankrolled by William Randolph Hearst, of all people. What? The famous pol- yeah, the famous politician, newspaper magnate, and inspiration for the film Citizen Kane. This was apparently a thing he liked to do. He would, like, find strange hard luck cases in the newspaper and then just give them money for lawyers. So he just, it's- just kickstarts people's law fees if they had a weird enough fucking case. It was, it was a bit of a mystery, actually, how she paid for her legal defense for the longest mm. time, and this is apparently I the mean- most likely explanation. I, I, well, I mean, they didn't even have talkies yet. They still had silent film. You had to entertain yourself somehow. <laughs> it's either interfere in the affairs of mortals or kill another poker. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think Randolph Hearst was actually into that kind of thing. I guess it's just like buy more newspapers, win more <laughs> elections, accumulate more intergenerational power that will contribute to inequality for generations. I mean, he he's rich, he's dead, let's speculate. I bet he was into killing huckers. I hope not. <laughs> the prostitutes of New York City deserve better. They had it rough enough. There was typhoid everywhere. <laughs> Everybody's coming down with typhoid. Um, her lawyer argued her case all the way to the state Supreme Court, stating that it was unfair to confine her as she'd never been convicted of any crime and had not been given a trial or a fair hearing, which was a violation of her rights. The judge said that he sympathized, like, he agreed, yeah, this is a violation of human rights, but he could not risk letting her out because he did not want to be blamed if she infected another family. Uh, Mm. Judges in those days ran in upper social circles. They risked a lot of social damage if, if they wronged the rich in some way. A 1909 judge also upheld the ruling, stating that the risks she posed to public health justified keeping her in confinement without a trial. So that's a rough precedent to start. Uh, Later on in 1909, two years and 11 months after being quarantined, the New York State Commissioner on Health, Eugene Porter, decided that the state should no longer hold disease carriers in isolation. Mary was told that she's free to go if she took an affidavit to swear off the profession of cooking and if she took reasonable measures to avoid spreading typhoid. 
She agreed to those conditions and was released back into New York City. Into the wild. Into the wild. Nary a tag on her collar around her neck. She's free. Mm. She is free. Go forth, you of the flowering bowels. Spread your typhoid. But Mary tried, she tried not to. Initially, she took a job as a laundress. Again, I Ooh, dangerous. I guess you could get typhoid. It's a dangerous profession. <laughs> uh, it became apparent quite quickly, however, that this was not a workable solution for her. This was pretty much the only other job available to her. But being a laundress did not pay anything close to a living wage. As a cook, Mary had earned $50 per month and was still barely able to escape the threat of poverty while supporting both her and her boyfriend. As a laundress, she only made $20 a month. I have no idea if Alfred Breihoff is still in her life at this point. She's The details about her personal life are quite vague, but she's still she's making less than half of what she used to. They didn't have COVID bucks back in the day. <laughs> Help you get past the typhoid. Daddy Trudeau's bankrolling all of us. It's incredibly disturbing that you call the Prime Minister Daddy Trudeau <laughs> and refer to anything that you buy with your emergency <laughs> CERB money as Daddy Trudeau bought this for me. <laughs> Papa Justin <laughs> bought me that bought is, me a present. <laughs> that is a nightmarish way to refer to the Prime Minister of Canada. I'm very upset. Literally all of my friends call him that. <laughs> That's worse. To make Mary's situation worse, she actually wounded her arm and contracted a raging infection that put her out of work for six months, which made her financial situation pretty dire. Tenuous. She also just didn't enjoy laundry. Fair. Fair. It was, compared to cooking, it was monotonous and boring. She also missed the perks and the lifestyle that came with being a head cook for rich families. After years of struggling to provide for herself and living in poverty, she just kind of went back to cooking. She was too notorious to work in the homes of wealthy families, so she used fake names to get jobs in mass food service instead. Which is worse. It's so much worse. She worked in commercial kitchens at hotels, restaurants, and other businesses, and typhoid tended to follow wherever she went. So she just has more people to infect with poorer access to healthcare. Yeah, she's like, let's, you know what? You want an epidemic? I'll give you a fucking epidemic. <laughs> I'll show you all. Sofer was unable to track her down because she changed names and jobs so often at this point in her life that Sofer could not catch her. Then in 1915, Mary took a job in the kitchens of the Sloan Hospital for Women at the Columbia University Medical Center. Sure enough, 25 people fell ill shortly after she arrived, and two died. Wow. One of the- Yeah, not what great. What a coincidence. Not great. She, she, one ice cream social took out half the hospital. <laughs> um, Peach Melba's revenge. <laughs> How has mankind wronged Peach Melba? <laughs> I don't know, but Peach Melba is coming back with a vengeance. Peach Melba's got an axe to grind. What did we do? Is is it the ice cream that's mad at being paired with the peaches? Are the peaches angry that we put them on ice cream? Is the raspberry sauce sauce. mad that we've overlooked it? I don't know. (laughs) It's not even part of the name. 
One of the head doctors at the hospital hired George Sofer to get to the bottom of the typhoid outbreak, lest his fancy hospital be accused of being contaminated with poor people's stink. It did not take long for Sofer to figure out, based on physical descriptions and Mary's handwriting samples, that Mary was once again the culprit behind the outbreak. She actually took off and went into hiding, but the police were able to track her down when she delivered food to a friend on Long Island. She was subsequently arrested and taken into custody. On March 27th, 1915, Mary was returned to quarantine on North Brother Island. She never lived another free day in her entire life. For the next 23 years, until her death, Mary lived in isolation in the small, one-story cottage on the island. Little is known about her life during this period. She seems to have just spent the last 23 years of her life just sort of existing. Arrested for poop-related crimes. From 1918 onward, she was allowed day trips into the city, and in 1925, she was given a job in the laboratory of an intern named Dr. Alexandra Plavska, washing glassware, preparing slides, and doing recordings. So, lab grunt work. And that's pretty much her life. At the age of 63, she suffered a stroke that left her paralyzed on one side of her body, and her health never recovered. She slowly declined until, on November 11th, 1938, she passed away at the Riverside Hospital at the age of 69 from a case of pneumonia. Her funeral was attended by only nine people, and she is currently buried in St. Raymond Cemetery in the Bronx. Um... I know, it kinda, it kinda takes the wind out of your sails. Just, oh, alright. Yeah, it, 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 it is a really sad story. Yeah, I mean, we look at the legacy of Typhoid Mary, we kind of have to ask, like, does does Mary Mallon really deserve to be remembered as a villain and associated with pestilence for all of time? I, I don't think she does. No. Uh, a lot of, when I grew up, the story that I kind of always heard about Typhoid Mary was that, like, they, she insisted on going back to cooking, like, she knew what she was doing, and she chose to spread disease anyway. But it's it's kind of, it's not it's really so true. Than that. And, like, if if people had just given her away, because, like, these are rich people. They have the money. They could have just paid her a stipend for the rest of her life not to do this shit. <laughs> they could have literally just paid her. <laughs> I didn't start out as a Mary Mellon apologist when I began researching this. <laughs> Because I was only vaguely familiar with her, but this is a hill I will die on. Yeah. Typhoid Mary deserved better. <laughs> I didn't even know that she lived and worked in New York City. Really, like, And as a fellow New things... Yorker, you really, you really see yourself in her. I, too, spread pestilence throughout New York City. <laughs> a great talent of mine. Um, but... Just your, your twin a hundred years ago. Sister. Um, I I mean, I knew her mostly as a punchline of history, but it's honestly not really fair. For starters, Mary was not the only asymptomatic spreader of typhoid in the United States. She wasn't even the worst spreader of typhoid in New York City at the time. A food services worker named Tony Labella, uh, an Italian immigrant, I believe. That's, that checks out. It, it's got that sound. It's got that <laughs> ring to it. Tony Labella was an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid who worked in food services in New York City, and he potentially caused outbreaks that affected hundreds of people, far more than Mary. Alphonse Cotiles was a bakery owner and restaurateur in the city who also potentially sickened hundreds. 
And then there was also Typhoid John, a local mountaineer and guide who led tours in the Adirondack Mountains of New York and caused outbreaks among his tour guests. Unfortunately for Mary, though, even though she was one of only several asymptomatic carriers who were responsible for the typhoid outbreaks of her era, uh, her circumstances happened to make her the ideal public punching bag. She was the only one who ever faced significant consequences for being a carrier. They were aware that these that these men, Tony Labella and Alphonse Cotils, were active in the restaurant scene, but neither of them ever had their lives taken from them. They were never put into 26 straight years of quarantine. Mary ultimately was a poor, unmarried, middle-aged Irish immigrant woman and domestic worker living in sin with an alcoholic German immigrant. She pretty much could not have checked more please-kick-me boxes in terms of the prejudices of the day. People really could not have been more prepared to shit on her and associate her with disease. Mary also had the bad luck of infecting rich, upper-class people instead of poor people. That'll get you. That's what'll do ya. I mean, the other, the other asymptomatic carriers were spreading it among poor neighborhoods. Nobody really cared. It was only the fact that Mary was spreading it to rich people in their own home that got some... some Raised some eyebrows. Uh, rich people often have complicated relationships with the people who serve them. Uh, and this was especially true of Irish domestic labor in that period of time. Uh, many rich people resented the Irish labor that made their lives possible. They were often disgusted by the Irish and were unhappy with the fact that they depended on these people. <laughs> this is an age uh, in history where many rich American women would refer to all female Irish staff as Bridget and would refuse to Ooh. learn their names. Uh, this is Bridget is a common Irish female name, but it's... It's insulting. It's an insult to suggest that the Irish are so interchangeable that you can just call them whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, you're also not allowed to call every black woman you meet LaShonda. It's not okay. <laughs> yeah, it's you don't pick a very stereotyped name from somebody's race and then call them by it while steadfastly refusing to learn their name. Especially, like, when you only have, like, five servants. Like, there's no excuse. <laughs> None. <laughs> Mary is often depicted as being disgusting, dirty, ignorant, and stupid, but that has more to do with general perceptions of the Irish than it does of her individual character. There's even a Marvel um, villain named after her. Is there? Yeah, yeah, Typhoid Mary. Oh, damn. Kind of 90s I mean, then area. It, then it's all worth it, isn't it? I mean, a, a lot is made of the fact that she didn't have great hygiene. Whenever you see Mary presented as, like, a fun fact... Mary never washed her hands. Like, yeah, that's true, but nobody in that era did. No, she no, like, right. she wasn't unusual. No, she wasn't, like, especially dirty. She didn't stink up any room she came into. She was, like, the standard level of disgusting for 1906. That's just, people yeah. were gross then. Yeah, like, the uh, people she worked for were probably grosser. She lived right on the cusp of germ theory being widely accepted. Handwashing was just not a standard practice back in the day. Um, she's also depicted as being dull or stupid or just simply incapable of grasping her situation. But Mary was literate, which was unusual. She could read and write, and she loved Dickens novels, she read the New York Times on a regular basis, and she was greatly talented as both a chef and a kitchen manager. She was great at the inventories, the scheduling, all the things that you need to make a kitchen run. 
So she wasn't a dumb woman. It's just that, like, people... She wasn't a doctor, and nobody actually sat her down to explain all the situation to her. You know, she was... She was and they had time. They had plenty of time. They had 26 they had years. concentrated time with her. Any hour of the day, they could just pop in. But from her perspective, like, she was an Irish woman who was a second-class citizen at that time, being looked down on and condescended to by wealthy doctors who were telling her that they just wanted what was best for her. And also her piss. Mary has also been routinely skewered by the history books for returning to cooking after her first quarantine. But what else was she supposed to do? Yeah, she didn't have a lot of other marketable skills. What were the choices here? They just sent her back out into the world with, like, a pinky swear. Yeah, they, they just said good luck, slapped her on the ass, and let her out. <laughs> I, I don't know that- I, they maybe skipped the ass slap. <laughs> maybe that's where they went wrong. I believe standard protocol back in the day. <laughs> just a friendly ass slap between friends. <laughs> or between doctor and captive. Um, <laughs> not creepy at all. <laughs> If the city didn't want her to return to cooking, they could have set her up with some job training or given her a job, or as Jessica said, just put her on a pension or a stipend for the rest of her life. If she was such a public health hazard, why put her in a position where she has to work at all? Instead, they gave her no help and just sent her back into Manhattan with a promise. Even public health experts in Mary's day did not think that the 23-year quarantine was warranted or that it was the best way to handle the situation. Many of them felt that she could have been given more training and education on how to handle her situation and that arrangements could have been made to allow her to lead a somewhat normal life without having to return to cooking or pose a risk to others. Ultimately, the 26 years that Mary spent in quarantine were not just a public health measure. They were a punishment. The history books weren't written by Mary, they were written by her doctors, and those doctors put themselves in a very sanitized light. <laughs> so are we done talking about poop for today? We are finished with poop. Jessica can can, uh, can go unclenched. take a shower and feel whole again. <laughs> I mean, she probably never will. Jessica's probably going to go sit in the bathtub in the dark until the sun rises. <laughs> As I do every night. Just your nightly routine. Put a little As bath bomb usual. in there. But we hope that you've enjoyed this episode and that you are now ready to take down the bourgeoisie, meat knife in hand, typhoid in ass. Um... <laughs> the only weapons you'll ever need, truly. <laughs> I have been Jessica. And I have been Janelle. And we are fat, fat French, French, and, and fabulous. fabulous.